Welcome to Contamination Station, safer environment together, a New South Wales EPA-funded podcast. In these episodes, you'll hear from those working to implement contaminated land policies and procedures at the local level by sharing our stories, frustrations, wins and losses. Our aim is for this podcast to become a repository of information that will support those currently working to combat contaminated land and for those yet to come. Hello and welcome to this episode of Contamination Station, Safer Environment Together, an EPA-funded podcast. I'm your host, Chanel Gleeson-Willie, and our guest today is Noel Schiller, one of the Canberra Region Joint Organisation Contaminated Land Managers. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the host and the guest as individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of the New South Wales EPA or any other organisation. In this episode, we're talking about the lessons learned in delivering three years of the EPA-funded Council Regional Capacity Building Program for the Canberra Regional Joint Organisation. Noel Schiller has worked as the Contaminated Land Project Manager since the funding was first granted in 2019 and has many stories to tell. Hi, Noel. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Chanel. So this podcast is aimed at helping those working in the space of implementing contaminated land policies and procedures at the local level. Noel, can you tell us a bit about your professional background and what aspects of managing contaminated land you've had experience with? Uh, Well, I guess I'll start by working in reverse, Chanel. So in 2019, I joined the the Canberra Region Joint Organisation under the CRCB program, which is a state government and local government joint funded program aimed specifically at transferring the regulatory responsibilities of UPSS and contaminated lands across to, um, from state to local. UPSS obviously being underground petroleum storage systems, which I'm not going to say every time. We all know that we, we operate these days with, uh, four letter acronyms. There'll be plenty of those in this chat today, but, um, I came into that role on the strength of my, um, sort of bank of knowledge in local government where I spent over 20 years since the um, sort of the early to mid nineties in regional New South Wales. Uh, I'm from the town of Young, the Southern Tablelands in New South Wales. And I worked for Young Shire Council, which is now Hilltops uh, and Cara Shire Council uh, in the environmental departments there. At various stages along my career path too, I had had a brief stint in both oil and gas in an environmental level, which was very valuable and interesting to, to everything else I've done to complement that. And, and look, I, I have a history in the agricultural sector. So uh, I'm from a fifth generation farming family out here in the young region, Broadacre Farming, which was my childhood and my, my uh, younger years of my life, uh, the learning years. From that, I, I did a trade course in greenkeeping in my local town, uh, which is very much like a small scale version of farming. So so that was my life in the early years, and I guess the knowledge I picked up there sort of complemented me every time I applied for roles in, in government. Uh, as you know yourself, quite often it's not only your academic knowledge, it's your on-the-ground and life knowledge that helps. So so I guess that's what has got me to where I am today in this role. By no means of what I class myself as an expert in anything, but uh, I guess it'd be fair to say I have a, a sort of a, a good working knowledge of a vast amount of areas in environment. Yeah, definitely. Sounds like it. Um, a good broad overview is um, is always good because you can then, I guess, specialize in the different areas such as contaminated land. 
So when you took on this role, how much knowledge did you find was already embedded in your councils around managing contaminated lands and putting those, those potentially contaminated lands through the, the planning process? Well, uh, as far as councils go, and I guess I, I'll talk mainly about regional councils. Uh, I mean, in local government, I should say, uh, I, I'm not as versed in the metropolitan side of local government. It's all been in regional, but I do know in regional areas, councils did not have any regulatory role in contaminated land or UPSS since 1998. Council were involved prior to that. So when this program was approved and adopted in 2018 and then, then kicked off in 2019, there'd been a 20 year gap from when councils had been involved in this sort of work. And until I came along and, and my cohorts around the states in all the various JO regions. So I guess it's fair to say in that period of time, it's like anything we do. If you're not practicing something or, or looking at it regularly, you just tend to forget about it no matter how competent you are. So councils were faced with 20 years of dormancy on the matter. So the, a lot of knowledge was gone and in, in local government councils too, it's a bit of a revolving door of, um, of staff turnover and so forth. So obviously people that would have done the role had since moved on. I did find a few of my sort of remote, smaller regional councils did still have an officer or two that could remember pre-1998 that had a little bit of a knowledge, but it was a matter of reteaching them all, um, not so much refreshing them, but starting from scratch again. So we came up with a, a training strategy with the EPA that we rolled out to the councils and we treated very much that they, they had no knowledge at all. Um, we, we thought that was the best way to do it. Start from scratch again. In saying that as well, quite a lot of legislation had been updated since then. So mm -hmm. it, it was an obligatory requirement of us to, to treat it that way too. Yeah. And what sort of training did you find worked best? Well, to start with, we, we were starting without a plan in a lot of ways. Um, well, I mean, we did have a good project plan, but once you get out in the coalface, it can change a little bit. So. To start with, we sent out some survey forms to all our councils to try and collect a bit of an idea of where they were at. So I speak in my area of the Canberra region. So our councils, 11 councils we had there, and they varied from large regional centres such as Wagga Wagga, uh, Goulburn and Queanbeyan, who had a, a larger volume of staff and therefore the knowledge was, was always going to be a lot stronger, down to some of our smaller councils such as Hilltop uh, towns like Young, Borrower, Harden, Yass, Chermit in those smaller regional councils. So we had to run the barometer over all these councils and we sort of approached it with a, a mentality that we, we can't manage what we can't measure. So we got an idea of what they all knew or they didn't know. Uh, we were very obliging in the way we did that. We weren't trying to put them under the spotlight. We encouraged them to tell us how they think they would be best trained. And from that, we, we formulated the package and put it together and yeah, we thought we had some success with that. Yeah, and was that mostly, I guess, face-to-face -face, or did you use, I guess, guest experts or online training? We we did the same and had a lot of face-to-face -face, um, that we delivered, but then after that we went to more a mixed bag approach uh, of different experts in different specific areas under UPSS and CLM. Is that kind of what you did as well? Yeah, well... Initially, we went out to the regions. So um, I guess it's fair to say at this point that, um, and I'll speak only from what I experienced, uh, maybe 
other officers in my, in my position can relate to this, but it's never a smooth transition from state to local when, um, regulatory responsibilities or, or anything's being handed down. There's, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a mentality, I guess, or I should say in local government, it's never overly welcomed. And it's probably a, a legacy from the thoughts of amalgamations. That's what I observed. So okay. you go back, go back to 2016, quite a lot of regional councils were put into forced amalgamations by state government, which didn't go down too well, always, uh, not always a happy marriage. So we're coming into this already, uh, maybe hostile environment, you could call it, trying to advocate the benefits of uh, a project that's being handed from state down to local. So it wasn't overly embraced, I guess would be the way to say it. So we very tactically and um, strategically had to work out a way to have them embrace that. So yeah, th there were challenges there. So we, we initially went out to the councils. We didn't want to do it uh, as a metro-based handing over to regions. So we, we were the, the overarching body. And, and our presence and our advocacy was, was crucial at that time. And it was working quite well. We were conducting training workshops and information seminars at councils in all our regions. And that was working really well until COVID came along. So obviously we could not get out into the regions. And um, so we had to sit down again, come up with another approach. As we know, everyone went online in COVID. So we approached it from an IT point of view. And it's, I guess it's amazing how things can sometimes work out for the better when you're not even prepared for them. So the doing it online probably got us better coverage. It, it allowed the, the remote councils or the regional councils to approach us when it suited them rather than us arriving out there and having to, to make them accommodate us. Uh, and once everyone got familiar with uh, working online, we, we got a fairly good coverage of our, our training. We did bring some experts on board and we created some, um, some podcasts and, and sort of live access trainings, uh, scenarios and so forth. That worked out quite well, but it, it was strange though. It wasn't the initial project plan. And I guess we weren't alone in that. Everyone across the state, across Australia or the world for that matter, had to adapt to the new way of training. So, so I guess, uh, it, it put us to the test, but, um, the, the council responded quite well. Yeah. And what was it that the councils were telling you that they really wanted to understand? I guess, what were the, the biggest issues? So we, we streamlined it down to the um, important parts. I guess like anything you're doing, it pays to read the instruction manual before you put your uh, IKEA furniture together, so to speak. So there was a lot of uh, legislation that had been updated and there'd also been a, a regulation brought out, the, the Protection of the Environment, the Operations Regulation for UTSS. That came out in September 2019. So we had a whole new rule book to operate under. And I guess in, in situations like that, it, the hardest part is convincing people not to go by the old way. We're all creatures of habit. And we had to roll in this new legislation that they weren't totally familiar with. Uh, the terminologies weren't always so easy. So on top of that too, we, we had to bring in a whole new set of safety procedures, compliancy regulations and so forth for, for planning and building regulations and environmental matters with council. So yeah, it, it, it was, the, the heads went back in the books to start with. That was our first approach to the training. And then we eventually rolled in some on-site practical demonstrations and so forth. But we just wanted to make sure that everyone was consistently up to a, a working level with the legislation. And that was probably the most challenging part. Yeah. Okay. 
So was it at that point um, more theoretical academic for a lot of the councils or were they actually actively dealing with a lot of contaminated or potentially contaminated sites? I know UPSS is a different kettle of fish. They're always dealing Mm. with a lot of those. But when it came to contaminated sites, were they actually dealing with many at that point? Yeah, well, they've always been there. The contaminated sites didn't sort of appear with the advent of this project at all. But uh, prior to councils becoming the regulator, any such matters in a planning or, or building uh, situation, they would relay that onto the onto the EPA, the New South Wales EPA, and they would act as the regulatory authority. So councils were now in a situation that where they had to take that role on and had to gain an understanding of uh, the Australian standards around UPSS, which relates to the design, the installation, the operation. That's something they hadn't done before. And now a lot of these um, standards and regulations and even the legislation, it's all, I guess it's all cut from the same cloth in a lot of ways, but it is still different in enough of a sense that it does require attention to learn. You can't just sort of wing it. So we are very thorough in the way that we rolled that out. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess too, in certain situations, I guess when we talk about our three-tiered system of government here, the other states in Australia all have slightly different regulations and legislation. So we have offices at councils that, and maybe moved into states in New South Wales, West Australia, Queenslanders. They had their own um, their own spin or their own take on how this was interpreted. Mm-hmm. So, so we we did have some um, good input from the officers from what they knew, but also some of them we we virtually had to wipe the slate clean with them again and say no, this is the new way it has to be done. Look, they were all really, really good. They understood that it was it was going to be their responsibility. Uh, and then we, we had to help them gain an appetite for the fact that this is where it was heading. Yeah, sure. Okay. And so why was it important for them to understand these things for their everyday job? What sorts of council officers, for instance, were you actually dealing with? Well, I guess the answer to the first question is the importance of it. So I'll just backtrack here for a little bit. So Back in uh, sort of 2015 and 2016, prior to this project being rolled out, there was a particular incident in northern New South Wales at a council. Uh, I won't mention the council. I, I don't need to go into the, the, the total ins and outs of it. But there was a small regional village of about 200 people that relied on groundwater extraction for their personal usage. Anyway, this particular village, it was much like any you would see around the state. I'm sure everyone's been through these places where there's sort of one service station, a small police station, an original school and a shop or two. So this particular township that relied on its groundwater, the local service station, which probably been there for 50 years or so, an old outdated legacy site, the underground tanks failed and they spilled about 400 litres of fuel into the underground aquifer. Now, um... That was only identified when the residents of this particular village, whilst watering their gardens and, and using their, their water, noticed an odour in the in the water. But then they noticed it was starting to kill their lawns and their plants and so forth. So it became a became a serious matter. The, the council that was the local council at the time came out and did an inspection and the EPA were called on board and it became a major incident, a major health incident. And the result of that was that a case study was put forward and it was acknowledged or understood from there that a lot of these old service stations that were put in in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 
steel underground tanks, they were starting to fail their integrity testing. So I guess it was uh, a matter of foresight then to realize, well, this is the first incident we've had. This, this is going to be one of many. They're all going to start failing consistently around the state and some numbers were crunched and it was worked out the effect of, that this might have on it. So from there, it was decided that rather than try and manage this from a state approach, it would have to be streamlined down to, to councils at a local government level where it'd be better managed. So that was the, I guess that was where this project was born, was born from uh, an incident, an environmental incident, which sort of prompted a proactive approach. Mm, so often are, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Look, a lot of what we do is um, sort of reactive at the time. Mm. But uh, this little incident, just to put some numbers to it, 400 litres of fuel, which is, which is basically a, a large wheelie bin of liquid, if you want to view it like that, spilled into the underground aquifer. That water cannot be used for extraction and, and human use indefinitely. So the EPA and the local government councils had to retrofit all the houses in that town. And I think there was maybe 120 houses or something to that effect. Don't quote me on that. They had to put a water tank and a pump on it, all the houses to, to give them a water supply. And I think even now, to date, they're still working on a, a pipeline from a water supply at a, at a neighboring council. But at the time, the immediate reaction response and cleanup bill was up around $800,000. That was just to get a water supply back to that village. And so 400 litres of fuel, $800,000 doesn't take much. You know, thankfully it was only a small single tank station. If you could visualize that happening on a, on a major service station, that may have a dozen underground tanks in a, in a heavily populated area that just sort of start to snowball the costs and the damage effects. So, so yeah, that was what prompted this entire program. It was probably the catalyst for, for the decision being made to, to meet this problem head on. Yeah. So that's, um, I guess definitely shows why it was so important to commence the program. And I'm guessing that you and well, as part of the incident, the uh, environmental health officers were involved in that one and the whole compliance team, I guess. Is that what you found with your councillors as well, that those were the main people who were attending your training and really wanting to get involved in, and upskill in this area? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, I couldn't put it better. I guess regional councils too, they, they all communicate. There's sort of... Um, as localized as they are, they, they, they do have a lot of um, cross-border type um, involvement with their, their neighboring councils. And when the effects of this occurred in northern New South Wales, it did take long for it to filter down to the other councils. And when you're looking at the financial state of some of our regional councils, who really do struggle, knowing quite well that uh, a, a, an incident of such monetary effect is what the one was I spoke about. Mm. They're probably looking ahead going, yeah, well, this could be us next. So I found that um, when I started our training programs, most of the regional council officers had heard of this event to, to some capacity. Some were quite well versed on it. They'd looked right into it. And I guess it's the same in, in any industry that anyone works in. If there's an incident somewhere that puts you in a situation where you think that could be me one day, you do tend to put a bit of extra focus and attention on it. So it, it was... If I dare say, it was maybe the type of thing that was needed to, um, certainly not needed by the people who lived in the village I mentioned, but sometimes an event like this is what is needed to address a larger problem on a longer term scale. It's certainly not ideal, but if you were to 
approach this in capturing lessons learned and future sustainability, there was a lot of value out of the incident in Northern New South Wales. Mm. And, and I think, I think all we can do is take positives out of um, something after the event. Yes, it's unfortunate that a lot of the uh, CLM-related catalysts for the industry have happened in northern New South Wales. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, that's well. <laughs> I'll take your word on that, Chanel. Uh, yeah. But, um, but I guess too, just to move to, to go a little further on from that, too, um, it was a good opportunity to um, to create some focus and teach the regional council officers a lot more about um, the petrochemical industry when we talk about UPSS. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is it is a, a volatile industry that, that has the potential to cause all sorts of health hazards and, and, and community risks. And uh, I personally see it's, it, it's right up there, I guess, with the knowledge, the knowledge that we now have on, say, asbestos and, and lead paint and, and PFAS will be another one that's, that gets a lot more focus to. These are the things that have long-term effects and, and the regulatory authorities and councils really need to have as much knowledge as they can. Mm, definitely. So you spent the last three years delivering this program or thereabouts. So I'm sure that you have had many successes and maybe some not so successful uh, events or training sessions or meetings. What's the biggest thing that you've learned by delivering this program? So it's really enlightening to go out into, into regions and, and work with the people who I guess are at the cold pace of, of, the, of their own challenges. So I guess without being the devil's advocate here, uh, there's not a great deal of, um, the, the relationship between state and local governments, uh, it, at times can be a little bit strained. You sort of, there's, there's a bit of an attitude of big brother, little brother, which, which I guess we, we all see. And, and this was relayed to me in, in every time I went out to a, a regional council, we heard a lot of positive feedback. We also heard a lot of grievances and so forth. And, and, and I was there's nothing like the good folk of regional New South Wales to say it like it is. That, that's yeah. what I've found. So I, I soon got told about a few analogies and, and sayings from um, regional New South Wales, such as the old classic that New South Wales stands for Newcastle, Sydney, Wollongong, and us people out in the country don't exist, which quite often said tongue in cheek. But but you do see uh, you do see a lot of merit in what they say in these regional areas. And also a lot of questioning too, in regards to the handling of funds and, and grants and so forth from a state government level to a local government, uh, I guess are at the end of the queue. I did have one general manager tell me an absolute pearler of a, an analogy. He said that, um, the three tiered system of government in Australia, he, he compared it to a multi-lane highway. He said that local governments, the, the slow lane in the left, state governments and middle lane in the the highway and federal's the, the express lane on the right. And he said, that's how the uh, progress and the uh, attention and the funding is distributed. And yeah, I, I have to listen to people when they say these things because they're working in these environments at all times. So probably in answer to your question in the roundabout way, probably the biggest thing, I, I, the challenge I had with councils is the fact that local governments uh, are quite well aware of the fact that um, the filtering from the top to the bottom will always come to them last. And, and, and that's, that's not a negative thing, I guess, but they, they're well aware of that. There, there's a strong belief in, in local governments that um, a lot of the, the shifting from state to local in regulatory roles is not met by the, 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 the cost distribution. So 
we faced challenges from the start of this project. Uh, there were numerous challenges. You, you throw in COVID, you throw in fires, floods, drought in regional areas. All these impacting effects do take the shine off what we're trying to do here and, and it sort of pushes the priority of it back somewhat. And it's interesting, you, you go to a regional council and even something as simple as, uh, as we've all witnessed in the last 12 months, the, the condition of the state's roads due to the weather, the weather situation, that has such a huge impact on how councils operate and how um, the ratepayers in the regions run their lives and their businesses. So we're dealing with challenging situations and I think that's probably the best way I could describe it. Life in regional New South Wales probably isn't as smooth as what you'd have in a metropolitan area. But that's the beauty of it, I guess. That's why we all love living out in the, in the regional areas. But um, yeah, so trying to establish that pathway from the state to the local was a challenge. Mm-hmm. But in saying that too, the EPA and our state government stakeholders are very supportive all along. And uh, yeah, we eventually got some great results. And, and I think it's at the stage now where contaminated land and UPSS has been embraced by councils. And they now understand that for the benefit of their own communities and public safety and environmental safety, it is best managed in their own backyard rather than from a state government body in a, in a regional city, you know, vast distance from where they are. Yeah, definitely. And the programs were, well, the funding was all allocated to joint organisations or um, regional organisations of councils. So amalg- not amalgamations, but like groups of councils working yeah. together. Do you believe that was, you know, a benefit for it to be rolled out that way? I think so. Um, so the, the creation of the joint organisations are orig- originally called regions of councils or ROCs. That was what they were called not long prior to, to this program being rolled out. But they were changed to joint organisations or JOs. And the simple maths behind that is that I think there's 134 councils in New South Wales, like government councils. And the ability for state government to function for 134 councils uh, individually limits their time. And I guess if you look at the amount of days in a year, as opposed to 134 councils, state government only gets about two days of focus on each council. However, if they can get them into a group in the one room with other councils, they can spend longer time with them. They get a broader outreach of knowledge from a collection of mayors, general managers, professionals in councils. So I think it does work. The logistics of it, it's always challenging, but the benefit is now that it, it brought focus out into regional areas. So a lot of the uh, JO forums and, and meetings that were once held in metropolitan areas are now being brought out to Wagga, Dubbo, Queanbeyan and Gold, and some of our larger centres. So yeah, it, it's bringing attention from state government out into the grassroots of local government, which I think is a great thing. And, and to use my JO region, which is Canberra, as an example, we have uh, 11 member councils. We're going from the western shelf of Sydney, uh, Winter Caribbean, Southern Highlands, down the coast, out into the broadacre agricultural areas around Yass and Hilltops and the Riverina down to Wagga and up into the snowy alpine area. So we really do have a good cross-section of councils, varying demographics and geographics. And it just, it brings a lot of knowledge into the one room. Mm. And I guess it also brings some economies of scale uh, with programs like this, that you are rolling it out once to 11 councils at the same time. So you don't need 11 people to deliver it. 
Yeah, that's right. And and it, it helps to bring some consistency, I guess, to to um, the legislation, the policies and the procedures that we're creating. Yeah. Uh, and I guess an example of that is that when we talk about UPSS, which has been probably the focus of this conversation, quite a lot of um, service stations that are owned by conglomerates or, or, or um, corporations, they don't just have them in the one council area, they might have them in numerous parts across the state. So... Every time they are managing that particular service station, if they're dealing with a different set of regulations, policies, and procedures for each individual council, it becomes very confusing for them. So this has created some degree of consistency. Mm-hmm. And we've also attempted to, to make it a statewide consistency with the other JOs. So yep. yeah, it's, and, and people experience that not just in contaminated land. I think if you spoke to any council, regional planning or, or environmental officer, they would tell you that uh, anything from food shop inspections to companion animal registration to building requirements, they differ slightly in, in each different council area. And anyone new to that area that's not familiar with that has to adapt. So yeah, creating consistency is a big thing. Mm. So are there any case studies of actual sites or I guess examples that you can Tell us about from your time in the role. Uh, I know some of you won't be able to share, but is there anything that you can share? Uh, yeah, look, there's some interesting ones. It's, it's been a been a wonderful ride for me, if, if I can use that term. Um, I've got to witness and experience some things in in my line of work that I hadn't up till that point. So, so look, uh, there's one particular interesting one I could mention. This occurred down in the Riverina. And obviously, I'm not going to mention towns or places or anything like that. That's not important at this point. But the the principle of the what I'm about to tell you is probably the important thing. So, I, I was called to to give some um, consultancy to a, a ratepayer who was a, a orchardist. He had a vineyard, and um, the vineyard had been in the family for you know four or five generations. Um, had a pretty good reputation. Quite a large vineyard. Anyway, this was only just last year. Way through. 2022 and and as we all know the, the flooding and the, the heavy rainfall episodes that we had across the state were, were the sort of the worst in decades but anyway this particular um orchardist he irrigated his vineyards from groundwater and i'm certainly not an expert on wine or wine making but apparently the quality of the water is paramount to the the end result of the, the quality of the product so so this particular fellow he would conduct uh, water sample testing on his bores at his vineyard, you know, you know, two or three times a year, I suppose, in, in the changing seasons, just to monitor the quality and the integrity of the water. And late last year, after the rainfall events, he got in touch with me and said, look, I've got some um, strange readings in, in my water samples that I've never had before. Uh, they're not alarming, but they're just different. And maybe I could help out and give some insight. And as it turned out, they, they did. Some further tests were carried out, a bit more extensive, and we traced it down to that the, what he was finding in his water was some trace elements from horticultural chemicals that hadn't been used on his farm since about the 1960s. Wow. So it was interesting. What that prompted for me, I, I looked a bit further into it, and it, it was a clear result of what we call contamination migration. So, so what happens is, obviously, in a farming situation, you're spraying chemical and products onto your paddocks or your crops. It does retain in the soil to a degree. In this day and age, uh, chemicals and, and agricultural products are, are created in a more biological friendly way that they don't have a lasting effect. But some of the older chemicals, 
certainly did uh, hang around and they can suspend in the soil or, or down low in rock shelf, whatever it may be. And they'll sit there and do no harm. And then we have a, a rainfall period like 2022 where the water table was lifted to a record high and it can bring it to the surface or it can even just unsettle and disturb it again and then it will migrate, travel through the underground aquifers. So I might add that the, the levels of uh, contamination that were detected were not of a critical or alarming level, but it just illustrated a really clear point that what can be happening with sort of effects from mother nature in, in a situation like that. So, so that was probably one of the most interesting ones that I came across and, uh, yeah, yeah and it just showed that, um, the need for us to, I guess, be more vigilant in the application of situations like this, whether it's in the, the petrochemical fuel industry or the broad acre agricultural industry, or even just the, um, the building and construction industry, the products that they use, it just underpins the fact that we all have to be more conscious of how we use them, where they end up and what the end result of that is. Cause the, the results are never uh, shown until further down the track. Yeah. And I guess it just highlights the importance of programs like this across lots of different areas in that, you know, this farmer had a resource to call on in you and you were able to work through this issue and come up with an answer to, you know, why he was finding these levels. And yeah, it might've ended up being nothing in, you know, with, with what he was detecting at that point, but, um, I'm guessing that, you know, it's probably resulted him in him doing more frequent water testing, uh, for the time being anyway, because obviously there's a the potential for that to have been, you know, the more dilute parts and there could be a more concentrated plume somewhere just waiting to come through. So these types of, I guess, lead indicators, uh, are really useful for people to understand what's actually going on and then put in place some strategies to monitor and, and potentially, I guess, manage that. So coming from a, a point of being educated, which is fantastic. Yeah. And I guess in that particular example that I gave, we were talking about a, a businessman, a farmer who was, who was extremely vigilant. He was doing tests all the time. So, so he was probably an example of how it's best done. Uh, yeah. As soon as one, um, concerning test result came back, he was onto it. Uh, however, I tend to view it in the other way that, uh, if took it to the other end of the scale in a similar situation where they might not have been so vigilant in their testing, or it could be someone who's just bought a farm or a property or an orchard and they haven't had it as long. And these sort of practices probably aren't undertaken quite as, as well as they were in this particular one. But, uh, yes, I agree totally with you. Um, this, this fella, he got hold of me through his council, uh, so three or four years ago, that wouldn't have been an option. So it, it just proved, I guess, that as a resource, we are being utilized. Hmm. Um, we've been implemented into councils and we are being utilized. And I would imagine that our accessibility will, will spread. It, it'll be um, advocated through people such as the vineyard operator. And um, that's what we're hoping for. We, we want to create a presence. We will then step back from councils and they will, will be the regulators. And we're hoping that we leave them in a better state than, than what they were when we arrived. Yes, most definitely. So is there anything that you would have done differently throughout the last three years in the way that you managed this program? Um, look, I, I guess, I guess um, without trying to sound too diplomatic, I would suggest if we, if we were starting this program over again, 
um, despite its great success, uh, and if we were looking to to you know create an even higher level of success, I think there needs to be probably a greater um, understanding or, or stronger rapport with state governments, uh, stakeholders, and the regional government stakeholders, uh, or local government stakeholders. And I say that with with total understanding too. Um, simply for the fact that um, metropolitan or, or, or and state government is operated and, and um, managed more from a metro-centric point of view. And I think it's important to, to understand that when, when some of our project plans are written, the things that aren't considered, and it quite often can't be considered, but, but should be in light of what we've been through in the past three or four years. And I speak, of course, like I mentioned before, flooding, fire, droughts, country roads that are, that are unusable, regional councils and regional communities that are isolated through one way or the other, and how this impacts on the communities. Um, and I say that too, not just totally going into bat for um, local government in regional areas, but in saying that, it's, it's probably very difficult for regional councils to understand the operations of a, of a metropolitan local government council and the challenges they face. So. I would think it's probably probably a good idea in, in future if these programs are rolled out again is to really buttress up the um, the networking and the, the rapport be between the two bodies prior to rolling it out um, within the community. Uh, mm. you, you really need to have state government and local government singing from the same song sheet. You're not singing poorly, you're singing very clearly. That is some very good advice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Noel. It's been really, really wonderful talking to you. Are there any parting words that you would like to say? Uh, look, I, I guess these these projects and programs are introduced um, in stages, but the long-term value of them is immeasurable. So this, this was a four-year program, but it will obviously roll on uh, and be continued in some format indefinitely. It wasn't just rolled out for this four-year period and then put in the closet, I suppose. So even when I'm no longer involved in this, I would hope that the, that the next lot of um, project officers and environmental officers that come along can pick up and continue on where we have. I think there's a stronger focus these days, uh, I guess, on environmental matters. I, I, look, at, uh, I look at my own experiences in life and, and um, without mentioning my age, I, I sort of grew up in the era where um, in, in household rubbish management, we threw everything into landfill and uh, probably, I, I guess throughout my life, I saw things such as recycling coming to day-to-day life to the point now that it's, um, it's second nature to everyone, our, our, our children, the, the emerging generations just know to recycle from your paper, your plastics, steel, so forth. Whereas back in my day, no consideration to it. So I'd like to think that maybe 20 years from now, what we're advocating here in the, in the early 2020s might be second nature down the track and, and might be something that everyone does automatically and consciously knowing quite well that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you again and we'll leave it there. My pleasure, Chanel. Thank you. You've been listening to Contamination Station, Safer Environment Together, an EPA-funded podcast hosted by Chanel gleason Wiley. We hope you've enjoyed our chat and been inspired to continue working towards a safer environment together. We would love for you to stick around for the next episode. So keep those headphones on, grab another cuppa and settle in for more insightful stories.